This episode of the Bucktails podcast is presented by Pistol Creek for those who enjoy the journey as much as the destination. Thank you for listening. Pick his head up. Yeah. Look at that. Good deer, babe. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Bucktails podcast. This is your host, Eli Self. I'm here with Caleb Copeland, and you heard his name in a couple of a couple of episodes ago with Andre Erich. Um, Caleb is the one that Andre told me got him into hunting. Um, they played baseball together at UNG, and Caleb is also a Dahlonega native. A lot of Dahlonegans on here here lately, but um, I remember growing up, I watched Caleb play high school baseball. Big lefty pitcher. Uh, what year did you graduate high school? So what year would that have been? Uh 2005. 05, okay. No. My sophomore year is 2001, so 2001, 2002, 2004? 04? Maybe. I don't remember, 4 or 5. Early early 2000s. (laughs) Something like that. Either way. So I was like 12. I was born in 92. So so we would go out there. My brother was, I guess, so... My brother graduated in 08, so he would have been a freshman your senior year, I think. Is him, Are him and Josh the same age? Yes. Okay, then yeah, he was a freshman my okay. senior year. So we were around the baseball program, so I got to watch Caleb play baseball. Then he went and pitched at UNG. Mm-hmm. And so saw playing baseball growing up, so I know him from that. And then um, we went to the same church for a while, Yellow Creek Baptist Church, yeah. back in the day. Um, and then I've been kind of following his career if you will he's a professional now um with the whole video and podcasting and producing and some big names and you'll have to fill in the blanks here but i know that you went you moved down south somewhere i'm not sure columbus columbus Columbus, georgia and then he worked for i forget what you're doing first but you ended up with sub seven Mm -hmm. which is jeff foxworthy and a bunch of other yeah it used to be yeah jeff doesn't do anything anymore but that's the that was the job i was hired to do um when i left alonaga is I went down there and I was there for five years. And my first like real filming gig professionally was with Sub Seven for Jeff Fox, really. Okay. And so did you, did you do like stuff for TV or was it more like online series? So we Sub Seven, the production company, um, did, did television and web series and still does. Um, and Jeff's particular uh, gig was a uh, web show called Fox Really Outdoors Inside and Out. And it ran for three, three and a half seasons. And I think we ended up doing, man, 20, 30, 40, probably 40 or 50 episodes of that. And uh, they were all web-based. I think you can still find almost all of them on the Mossy Oak Go app. Um, Maybe not the first season because we weren't with Mossy Oak the first season. But uh, a lot of them, if you search them on YouTube, Fox for the Outdoors, Inside and Out, they're still out there somewhere. But that was my first foray into professional and I'll use right. air quotes um outdoor video and uh then I was work with a bunch of huge names there um Lee and Tiffany being probably the biggest and they still do Lee and Tiffany's show still friends with those guys great people hardest working people you ever meet um I started the show when I was there it used to be called The Habit now it's called The Hunting Habit and we produced that here it's now a web show over off of TV thank the lord And then um, we used to do the Under Armour short film series. 
uh, when I was there, we were also doing Craig Morgan's All Access Outdoors, the country music singer Craig Morgan. Um, I'm forgetting. We did Hunt Masters when they were there, and now I'm doing Hunt Masters here at uh, under the Copeland Creative name now. And then, um, dang, what other shows do we do? I'm missing some. Fox, I mean, uh, Mossy Oak Gamekeepers, which I produced for a year. And then... I'm drawing a blank. I think that we, when I left Sub Seven in two twenty early twenty seventeen, or mm-hmm. we were doing seven television shows and a web series. Gotcha. So it was a big production, and uh, left there in twenty seventeen to start my own my own business, which is always really what I wanted to do. And here we are, almost four years later. Nice. And you bought your own office space. Yep, office here in Dahlonega. Uh, and I only bought the office space because windstream internet at my house is atrocious and we couldn't do what we needed to do. And I was a one man band at the time. And then I hired Ryer last August. So he's been here a little over a year. And then we just hired Clay Currington in uh, July of this year. And Clay's actually on the road right now with Kip Campbell with Red Arrow, which is another show that we do. Okay. And uh, Ryer leaves in the morning to go back up to Illinois with um, Greg Ritz for Hunt Masters. And I leave on the 6th to go with uh, Brian Stevens to do a whitetail hunt in Nebraska with Spy Point. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, so a lot of a lot of big names. You threw out one there, uh, Hunt Masters with Greg Ritz. I listened to, I think it was your last podcast you released. Mm-hmm. Um, but how you got you got him on your, uh, on your docket, I guess, for uh, Copeland Creative. And something that, that kind of leads me into the why I started this podcast is, you know, you are... In my eyes, a professional. You can use your air quotes if you want to, <laughs> but you're a professional. You're, you know, at the pinnacle of production, and that's kind of. If you listen to that podcast with the Redneck Tech podcast, Greg Ritz talks about a story where they went and they were elk hunting. He kills one the first day, and then he's like, "Yo, we're gonna stay for three more days and just video some more and hang out and not kill anything else, just to you know make a show, make a movie." Yeah. yeah. So that's you know. That's the other end of the spectrum from what I'm doing. You know, that is like basically making a movie very cinematic. Like every every shot is, you know, very well thought out and, you know, insanely perfect in my opinion. But um, so that's, you know, where that's where Caleb is. Caleb does this thing for a living. He's, you know, very, very good at what he does. Then my podcast, compared to what most people do, I would call it a podunk podcast. It's very cheaply done, free software across the board. Um, but one thing I like about it is not everybody can film or has the, you know, the no, or a lot of people don't know how to film. Mm -hmm. They might have cameras, they might, you know, make videos, but they're awful and you can't really tell what's going on. You're like, oh, well, there's a tree, there's a ground. Oh, I think I see a deer. (laughs) I heard a shot. Okay. Well, you know, what, what happened? Yeah. Which is where I think everybody's videos started. I will look back at some of my early stuff and. I wouldn't show it to anybody. I don't want anybody to know that I did that. <laughs> right. That, yeah. And like, like you've told me a few times, you got to start somewhere. Oh, yeah, for sure. But, um, but yeah, that's some people don't have that ability or the creativity, talent, if you want to call it that. But um, so my podcast is kind of on the spectrum of people who don't have videos, but st- everyone has a story of some kind. And I think mm-hmm. that's kind of the birthplace of hunting, and that's what makes hunting interesting and fun for a lot of people is – the storytelling aspect, and that's kind of you. You said that's kind of a, you know, 
attached to your brand, mm-hmm. you know, storytelling at the highest level. Um, but yeah, we, there are a lot of stories locked in hunters' minds, and that's kind of what I want to be able to tell, you know, show people because a lot of people can take a picture. You see that on Facebook or on Instagram or someone sends it to you like, oh, man, I want to know what happened. So that's kind of, again, I've said that a few times on episodes here lately, but I wanted to kind of put in retrospect of, you know, storytelling is a very wide array. And that's, you know, sitting here with a professional and here I am interviewing him. So thanks for coming on. Yeah, man. And uh, as far as a story that you want to tell, I'm not sure what you're going to tell, but um, we can kind of go. I do want to ask you. Obviously, you you know, if you want to call it hunt for a living now, you're videoing hunting for a living. How did you get into hunting? What started you? Was it a parent, a brother, a you know, grandfather? You know, how did you get started hunting? So, the story I'm told, and this is, and the reason I say it that way is because I wasn't, I guess I was too young to even remember, but I was 18 months old sitting at the base of a tree with my dad when he killed, when he shot a little basket rack eight point. Okay. So... From since I've been 18 months old, hunting has been a part of my life. Wow. Um, and uh, I've told people forever, and I've ever been asked, you know, hey, did you know this is what you want to do? And I didn't. I just, the only two things I was ever enjoyed or was ever any good at was baseball and hunting. And I knew that I was going to make a living doing one of those two things. And I didn't know if it was going to be coaching. I mean, obviously you want to be a professional baseball player, but that's a, that's always a, a long shot and obviously didn't work out for me. But it was one of those things to where I knew if I could do one of those two things day in, day out, and get a paycheck from it, that I would be happy. Um, I grew up hunting with my dad, and we grew up hunting mountain whitetails here in North Georgia with a rifle. And that's all we that's the only thing I knew. Right. We didn't really turkey hunt because turkey hunting's in the spring in the south, and I was playing baseball was no time to turkey hunt. Didn't really get into turkey hunting until I was in, I guess, high school, early college. Um, started turkey hunting, and when I started having a little bit of time to do that, and uh, and that, that ruined me too. Um, I honestly would rather turkey hunt than deer hunt now. Uh, if, 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 I guess my, my grandmother says if I had my druthers. But, <laughs> you know, hunting... Hunting and baseball were the only two things I was ever any good at. And uh, just luckily it worked out that hunting was the one that I could figure out a way to con some people out of money to let me go do it. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't, we don't necessarily film hunts for a living. We tell stories that just happen to be about people hunting. That's kind of how I try and. Yeah, I, I, like, try and, I like that. Yeah. I kind of try and, because essentially what we're doing is we're filming a television show or a web show. It's just not about cooking. It's not about cars. It's not about, you know, reality TV. It's about hunting. We're just right. telling stories that the subject matter is a deer, an elk, a turkey, a whatever the you know the case may be. But that storytelling aspect in this industry allows us to go places, meet people, and see things that I wouldn't get to do otherwise. Right. You know, I, that's the I think that's the biggest takeaway for me is with this job is. Yeah, I'm extremely blessed to do what I do, um, get to go and do and see things and meet people. But that's that's the biggest takeaway is not, you know, the big animals or the cool films at the end. It's at the end of the day, it's the all the things that I got to do because of hunting um, that 
my dad now lives vicariously through me because of that. Right. You know, his favorite thing to do after I get back is ask me when I, where I went. You know, when, when I went to the Yukon to do a moose hunt, he wanted to know all about it. And when I go to Alaska and did a brown bear hunt, he's like, I want to know all about it. Go do these amazing elk hunts in Utah. And he wants to hear the story. And, right. You know, and it's one thing to show someone the video, but then it's like you said, for me to be able to tell my ass, my side of the story, because my side of the story is usually way different than what you see on camera because what you see on camera, what you see as a finished product is for a client and it's built around a certain framework. Right. Whereas if it were up to me to tell the story how I want to tell it, you know, if I was the subject on camera, it would be a much different story. Right. Because, you know, I'm a redneck from Georgia that is in Utah or Alaska or Yukon or Africa or all the crazy places I've got to go. Well, every every one of those experiences is you know, crazy to me. And then you go with some of my clients who've done this for years and years and years. It's not that you lose that luster with those people, but they have to tell a story and they have to adhere to a certain standard with sponsors and with a certain gun, a certain bow, a certain time of year or whatever the case may be. And they're kind of put in a box a little bit and we get to be there and tell the best story and the best version that we can. But if you ask me what story I'd tell, it's going to be different, you know, and that's, and that's the story I get to bring back and tell my dad um, about the crazy float plane ride, you know, going to the Yukon or how really enormous a brown bear is. And you can't describe it unless you lay hands on them, you know, and how bad they stink. And then, you know, all those different things that I've had the opportunity and the people that I've gotten to meet, you know, the Jeff Fox release of the world, right. you know, and, and it, you know, people like that, there's a laundry list of, these incredible human beings that I've got to meet and all of it is because of hunting. It's not because of me. It's not because of, you know, the places that we are. It's because of the love of the outdoors and the love of hunting. And, uh, you can't put a salary or a price tag on that to me. You know, that's, that's the, that's the real value in my opinion. Yeah, no, I like that. Um, I think, like you said, it's, it's it is interesting I hadn't really thought about that side of it where, you know, for your clients, you're telling a story through their lens or for their audiences or whatever it might be for whatever media outlet they're doing it on. And your stories might be way different. So that's, that's a neat yeah. little dynamic that I would, I would have never thought about. Well, not even, not even just, you have to tell it within their box. You have to tell it within their time constraints. Like if it's television, True, yeah. it's gotta be 22 and a half minutes. Well, wow. yeah. If it's web, it's usually you know 10 to 12. Yeah. You, you know, all of those different parameters change how the story has right. to be told. Um, the purest story doesn't have a time length. Right. The purest story doesn't have sponsors. Right. The purest story doesn't have any of these things. You know, if you watch hunting television, you watch hunting media at all. All of those things are shot within the lens of the people paying for them. Mm -hmm. Because it costs money. At the end of the yeah. day, it costs money. And... To, to produce shows like Greg Ritz and to produce shows like Red Arrow costs real, real money. Oh, yeah. Um, so who pays for that? It's the sponsors and it's the networks and it's all these outlying, you know, influences that shape that box that we have to live within. And then we have to be try we have to try and be creative within that box. And that's the hard part. And then you take all of those factors and you condense them into two and a half months in the spring and four months in the fall. Right. 
And now you've got to get all that work done in essentially whatever that is, six and a half months, and then all the editing in five and a half months. Well, and it's a lot. And we're right in the middle of it. We're about to start our, our rut run for whitetails, and it's going to be balls to the wall. Every year it is, but that's what we signed up for. Yeah, yeah. So uh, something off of that, oh, off of that last comment, like what is your longest time on the road, like consistently? Like It would have been this year, 33 days. Wow. That's insane. Yeah, it was 33 days. Uh, I was 60, I think it was 6,800 miles I put on my truck. Wow. And uh, that was, I don't know how many states I stopped in. Georgia, Iowa, South Dakota, Montana, Idaho, Utah, New Mexico, back to Utah, back to Montana, home to Georgia. Wow. It was a long trip. That's crazy. And uh, something you said earlier, you have to you have twenty two and a half minutes to tell a story for a client. So that's for a, a TV lot of, show, yeah, yeah, for a TV show. So that's a lot of restrictions for those type of you know clients. And something that's interesting to me that kind of falls out of that is, you know, the length of most podcasts, like a hunting podcast, they might be hour, hour and a half, mm-hmm. and they're telling the same story. Yeah. So like that tells you how many how many extra details or. And one thing I like about listening to your stories on, on your podcast or, you know, any any hunting podcast, things like that, or just stories that I've been told on mine is they'll be going along and telling their story. Then, oh, yeah, and by the way, this was also happening. Like, it yeah. come, as it comes in their mind, yeah. I love hearing, like, you know, what made them think about that little detail. So that's – I do love the, the audio type of uh, storytelling. So, oh, for uh, sure. So, anyways, to uh, a story of yours – do you have anything you want to share? Something from this year, or I, I said earlier that yeah, um, maybe even something that is before your time as a before your time filming something. Well, that, uh, I guess an easy one for me right now would be I guess because it's not we haven't put together really any of the footage, and I don't even know if we'll end up getting to time to edit it. But my elk hunt this year in okay. New Mexico, um, I was fortunate enough to get an elk tag, a private landowner, uh landowner permit to hunt it's weird how new mexico works so you buy a landowner voucher and you can hunt public and private land within a certain unit and uh so i got one of those tags this year in new mexico thanks to one of my clients who's like the nicest person in the whole wide world because i couldn't have afforded to do it if it wasn't for him and uh got to go out there kind of in the middle of that long 33 day run that we we set aside six days in there for me to do my own elk hunt. Cause that's the one thing I'm going to set aside every year. If exactly. I have time is to go on a, an archery elk hunt. Didn't you, didn't you used to go with your brother and dad? Yeah, we went, uh, what year was that? 2015 was the first time I'd ever went. Uh, my first ever archery elk hunt was, I guess that would have been 2015. Well, I take that back. I'd filmed a couple before that, but the first time I'd ever had a bow in my hand was 2015. Okay. Um, and the first time I ever filmed one was 2013 in Colorado with Chuck and John. And, uh, it ruined me. Yeah. You know, you, you grow up in Georgia and hunting 110 inch whitetails right. all the time. And, uh, I mean, I'll never forget just to kind of you know jump around a little bit. I never, you know, I grew up hearing about this mythical thing called the rut, you know, for whitetails. Right. And these deer chasing and fighting and grunting, and I'm like, never seen that happen. Yeah, not, not you here. You know, you, you see a bucket get shot type thing, you know. 
And uh, I remember the first time I was at Jeff Foxworthy's. I'll never forget it. It's 2012, and it was in November, and I'm sitting in a, a stand they call Sugar Bowl filming Brent Burns, and uh, it's, it's like super low light. It's like November the second, and uh, sun's already gone down. I'm out of I'm out of shooting light, and there's this old bully deer that they wanted to shoot, but he didn't come out or early enough. Is gr- like growling at does. I mean, just like the meanest grunt, and he is running them like a cutting horse. Wow. And running them and running them and running them and running them and growling and grunting and growling and snort wheezing and just, I'm like, holy crap. Like, wow, this actually happened. And I literally looked at Brent and I said, so this is that thing that they call the rut. He's like, yeah, have you never seen? I was like, dude, I've never, I've never seen deer do this. You know, that was eight years ago. Right. And I was like, I've never seen deer act like this. I was like, if you see a buck around our house, you shoot it. You're like, it's like nine to one does to bucks around us. And he's like, you know, you see what age structure and you see what buck to doe ratio and you see what proper management does. It's unbelievable. Right. And um, and then we ended up killing that deer a couple of days later. We put out a decoy. He's seen him from like 200 yards, laid his ears back and walked all the way to him. It's like you see things in the Midwest and that happened in Georgia. Wow. You know, Harris County, Georgia on, a, you know, a highly managed piece of property. But, you know, it just goes to show you what's what's possible um, with the right management, the right plans and everything. And, and that kind of really opened my eyes to, okay, this is, this is real. Like this is the rut, this rut thing is really real. And then, you know, you have those experiences hunting deer and turkeys on great places. And then I go out West for the first time and I hear an elk bugle and I see an elk bugle in the wild. And I'm like, Oh, this is, this is a whole nother level. And, uh, you really don't care about filming and hunting whitetails much after that. Yeah, right. Um, but the saddest part about saddest part about the elk thing is, is like if you want to archery hunt them, you, know, you only about have September, and you really only have about a week, two weeks in September where it's really good. Hmm. Otherwise, it's really tough, or you're hunting with a rifle, or it's really, really cold. Right. So you know you've only got that really narrow window to to do to be in in the midst of that really that big romance of elk hunting with a bow, and. um First time I did it was filming, and the first time I got to hunt them was in 2015 and didn't kill anything. 2016, went back out again, didn't kill anything, and uh, had the best hunts and best time I've ever had in my life and didn't kill a thing. Didn't even come close. Yeah. But I was out west hunting elk with my dad and my brother, and man, it, you and, and we did it on public land. I mean, I bet we had less than $1,500 in the hunt. I mean, wow. it was cheap. And, uh, and, and that's the problem. Like, I've talked to so many guys around here that want to do their first elk hunt or want to do their first western hunt or public land hunt, period. But they're scared to take that leap to go out there and do it. They don't know what they're doing. You think I knew what I was doing? Right. I know what I was doing. Uh, people are afraid to fail. Like, I'm, I'm, I barely know what I'm doing now. Right. You know, but, and, and this is what I tell them. Like, look, if you enjoy hunting here, you enjoy hunting in North Georgia, you need to go hunt literally anywhere else. You throw a dart at a map and the hunting is better there than it is here. I can promise you. Yeah. And um, especially if you want to go on an elk hunt, if you want to go on a do-it-yourself over-the-counter elk hunt in Colorado, you owe it to yourself just to be in the woods and experience it. You're probably not going to kill anything. One out of 10 people on public land over-the-counter, they kill. It's a very, very low percentage. But if that's why you're there is just to kill something, then you're going for the wrong reasons anyway. Right. So I've done, I did 11 
elk trips, 11 different hunts, um, usually two or three a year before I ever laid hands on an elk. And that was the one I killed in 2017 in, on public land in Colorado. And uh, I was there with my dad and my brother. So, I was so glad that they got to be there for my first one. And it was just luck of the draw. And that would actually really be a really good story to tell. A luck of the draw that I shot it and, and my brother didn't. So we got there. A friend of mine's dad just had moved to kind of south, central, southwest, central Colorado. And uh, a really good friend of mine does some filming, some freelancing invited us out to hunt public land. They had a house that's just like 30 minutes from this public. He's like, y'all come out here and hunt. And, you know, we were like, okay, you know, free place to stay and over the counter tag. You're like, Hey, you know, at least it'll be fun. That's kind of my theory. You know, I'm three years into not killing an elk and, you know, probably $3,000 in two trips. So I have $1,500 more dollars. I'm going to at least try it. And this is the year I started sub seven. I had more herbs started sub seven. I started Copeland Creative and um I had my first opportunity to really hunt. So I elk hunted for two weeks that September. I hunted in Idaho the week before and got really, really close. And then I drove down, got Josh and Dad from the airport in Denver, and we drove down to hunt southern Colorado. So we met Joey and his dad and well, they didn't get there till the second day. So we went the first day and just blind hunted this area. Like he like dropped a pin on the map and he's like, this is the area we hunt. We'll be there tomorrow. Y'all go in and, you know, see what you can figure out. Well, we get there, we start going up the trailhead and this public land that we literally have a pin there and there's trucks and trailers and four wheelers and horse trailers everywhere. I mean, there's wow. people all over this unit and generally in Colorado, there's going to be a bunch of people. And I've learned that I did. I've done public land in Idaho a couple times, Colorado a couple times, and Wyoming. And every time there's been people. If you're wanting to go out west and do a hunt by yourself, good luck. You're not going to be by yourself um, unless you pay a lot of money for a private land, some ranch tag. So we get there, and you know we're getting discouraged. First things first, that morning in the dark, we get to the trailhead we want to get to, and there's like five trucks at this trailhead. So we're like, well, this is kind of, this kind of sucks. So we backtrack back down the logging road or not. It's not really a logging road. It's more of a, I guess it'd be more of a county main, not county maintained, but like a national forest road. Okay. And it's got gravel and stuff on it. And it's not the best road, but I've driven worse. And uh, we back up to where I'm just looking on Onyx maps on my phone. I'm like, oh, you know, that looks like an area that's kind of hard to get into. So we literally just kind of climb up the side of this deadfall hill, me, dad, and Josh, and it's miserable. It's raining. And we're we're going in blind. We don't know what we're doing. Well, we climb up and up and up because the theory, and this is me being an inexperienced elk hunter, you know, you want to get away from people and you elk are going to go up to the highest point. So you want to go up. Well, man, we start going up. The higher we get, the more people we run into in the woods. Where, you know, we'll call and we'll call in another hunter. You know, we'll bugle, we bugle in another hunter. And we, all right, we're, you know, keep going, keep going, keep going. And we kept running into people all that day, that entire day. All we did was run into people. And then everybody we talked to, they're like, man, you got to get up high. You got to get up high. You got to get up high. You know, and we get back to camp that night in the dark to Joey and them's house. And they got there that night. And we're sitting around talking about what we're going to do the next day. And I'm like, I'm not going high again. Because like, every time, every, you know, the higher we got, the more people we would run into. So everybody had the same idea. Everybody had the same idea. Yeah. 
and they're trying to get away from each other, but all they're doing is just walking the same direction. Um, and, you know, and everybody's using the same trails. Nobody's getting off the trail because it's almost impossible to walk when you're not on a trail because of all the deadfall or how thick it is or how steep it is. So everybody's kind of concentrated in the same areas. And I'm like, well, if that's the case, there's no elk there. They've ran all those elk off. That there's that much hunting pressure that we just ran into, and we're not even an elk. Yeah. So uh, I got on Onyx, studied that map for like two hours that night, and I found a what it looked like to be an unmarked or, or the road was unmarked when you're driving, but it was marked on Onyx, and it went down the mountain, opposite direction of where everybody was going. Now, there was cars and trucks parked all around this area going by here, but it was going down the mountain and not up the mountain. I'm like, it can't be any worse than what we did yesterday. So literally, we found this little road in the dark the next morning, second morning, and we start going down and down, 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 down. It's a big switchback. And right as soon as we get to the switchback, and I'm looking at the, my maps on the phone, still in the dark. It's me, Dad, and Josh. Uh, I look at the, you know, at the, right at the switchback when we're going to switch back, and I'm deciding, okay, do we just follow the edge of, this, you know, this trail that goes off the switchback, or do we go all the way to the bottom? And about that time, we jump a whole herd of elk in the dark that are bedded. I mean, pilot elk. Wow. And they're tearing the woods down, you know, running by us. And I'm like, Dadgummit. Though there they were. They were down here. So thinking that they hadn't smelled us, thinking that we just they just don't didn't know what we were, we kind of let it settle down a little bit and we keep working our way down. Well, as we're working down, as the light you know, start to get some daylight, we hear an elk bugling. And we didn't hear an elk bugle the day before. So immediately, I mean, we hear a male elk <laughs> making a noise. We're stoked. So we start working our way to this bull. I mean, we're working and working and working and working. It sounds like we're getting really close. Um, and I'm the only one that knows how to call. You know, my dad's got like a hoochie mama and Josh has got a hoochie mama. But in terms of like, I know how to bugle. I know how to cow call and I know how to use reeds and all that stuff. And they don't. So we start working. And I'm like, I want to try and cover this whole area in the bottom. And then there's three of us. So I'm like, mm-hmm. I put dad here at this one spot thinking, you know, if he comes around this ridge, you're here. You know, if he tries to wind us, you're here. And then me and Josh are going to go down and see if we can get, see if we can get even closer. So we start going down and it comes out to this big opening. And, uh, and the, and there's a, like an old logging road that goes around this hill and the, the logging road goes underneath the hill. And we get right behind this logging road or right behind this little hill. And, uh, and I, I, Leading up to this, I'd watched a bunch of Elk 101 with Corey Jacobson and listened to a bunch of YouTube videos and tried to do as much research as I could. And it's a lot like turkeys, is you want to keep some sort of terrain feature between you and them when you're calling because if you're in the open and you're calling in the open, well, all they got to do is step to the edge and see there's nothing there. But if I keep that hill between me and what I'm calling to, He's they blind. have to come over the hill or around the hill to see. Right. So I stay behind the hill made a cow call, and a different elk bugles really close to us. All right, so did not know it at the time, but it was a satellite bull to the bigger bull that we had been hearing all morning. Well, I didn't care. It was a satellite bull, a big bull. It didn't matter. If it was legal, it was getting shot. All right, all right so what is, a, what is a satellite bull? For a North Georgia boy, and probably most of my, most of my listeners are in Georgia. Yeah. 
it sounds to me like elk hunting is a lot like turkey hunting. You're, it, it, you're calling it, yes. or you're listening, mm-hmm. and then you, you say a satellite. So what is a satellite bull? So it is a lot like turkey hunting in certain aspects. In the calling aspect, it's very much like it. But so the way that elk work is there'll be what's called a herd bull, which is usually the bigger, more mature bull, and he is going to have the harem of cows. He is going to guard those cows. He is going to circle them. All he does is literally almost run circles around those cows and watch them all the time. And then every now and again, there'll be a straggler cow that he either tries to get in the herd or that he that gets separated. And those satellite bulls, all they do is follow that herd waiting for one of those cows to get separated. And what they do is they, they're, they're and with big herds, you know, out West, like there'll be a satellite bull and he'll have 40 cows. Wow. Well, eventually somebody's going to get separated or they're going to start moving off and there's going to be a couple of cows that are still feeding. Well, those satellite bulls that are circling that herd all the time, they're going to try and cut those cows off to start their own herd. Uh-huh. So those are satellite bulls. Essentially your herd bull is the center of the planet. And then the satellites are, no, that makes sense. they're all yeah. the time rotating around waiting for their chance to cut off cows. So we essentially on accident sounded like a cow that had been cut from the herd. Well, the satellite bull finds his opportunity. Well, the way that this hill works is this cow, this bull bugles at me, like almost cuts me off. And usually when it's just like a turkey, they cut you off. They're, they're wanting to come or they're being aggressive or whatever the case may be. Just, you kind of have to read, um, you know, how they're acting and, you know, what they sound like, which we can get into that too. But, um, so we're behind the hill and we've got a great wind. So I'm like, I tell Josh, I'm like, you get on this side of the hill. I get on this side of the hill. He's going to come to one of us, you know? And it's about that time Josh got to his spot. I got to my spot. He had cover. I really didn't except for the hill. I was kind of standing in the middle of that road with that hill separating me and the, you know, the kind of the side of the hill. About that time, I saw a rack running right to us. And it was like, is he going to go left or right? He goes left, he goes right to Josh, he goes right, he comes right to me. And just by the grace of God, he comes right, walks right to me. And he's walking up the hill. And I, I, see, I see the tips of his antlers coming at me. And I just kind of tucked down below the hill, drew my bow, and then stood up. And I saw the rack walking right to me. And I saw his eyes looking at me. And he walks to 17 yards and just stands, stares there and stands there and looks at me and stares. He's like, hmm, you're not a cow. Yeah, and the only thing, only shot I had was like straight on, right at his, like right at his throat, like that frontal shot. And I took it and I hit him right dead center of the throat. And uh, he crashed and I mean, he ran out of there like a scalded dog. And Josh come running around the corner. Josh never saw him. He was less than 100 yards from me. Wow. And, uh, he runs over there. And he's like, did you shoot? I'm like, yeah, I just shot. And, uh, and then, so we're like, we gotta go get dad. So we go back, can't, you know, so frantic. We couldn't even really find dad. He's probably two or 300 <laughs> yards away. Find dad. And he's sitting there. No idea what's going on. My dad can't hear a fat hog fart. <laughs> so he has no idea what's been going on. We go get him and it's starting to rain a little bit. So I'm getting stressed. And, uh, we can't find any blood. And I'm like, how is there no blood? I shot this sucker in the throat. Yeah. Like, he's bleeding. I've got a two-inch rage hole in his throat facing me at 17 yards. I know I didn't miss him. 
I saw the arrow hanging out of him when he ran off. And uh, we're like circling this little area. And thank God I had Josh and Dad there because if it had been me, it would have been bad. Josh finds everything he broke, like where he ran through and just crashed. No blood there, but you can definitely tell yeah. this is fresh breaks where something ran through here. So for a little white tail, we look for like, oh, I see some ticked up mud here. Yeah, You're like, no. oh, well, this tree's knocked over. There's some yeah. branches broke. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he he took down like half the top of a down tree. He took it out as he ran through. Wow. And um, we kind of get on that trajectory and probably I would say 150 yards past where I shot him we found the first blood and what we figured out after we recovered the bull you know he ran probably five or six hundred yards Josh actually found him up going up the ridge which scared me too you know that he's going up after he'd been shot like that he didn't start bleeding until his lungs had completely filled up and come out the hole oh. so that was the reason we couldn't find any blood but we found him laying looking down the hill where we were coming up behind him. And uh, that was the first elk I'd ever laid hands on. And like I said, I had filmed 10 hunts before then and, and some expensive hunts that we had never killed. Wow. And uh, that was the 11th trip I'd been on. And uh, that first elk I ever laid hands on was that one. And it was mine. And it was, man, it was a party after that. You know, oh, and, to, and to be able to be there with my dad and Josh and um, get to cut that elk up with them and we didn't luckily we didn't have to pack it too terribly far and uh you know other than us and one other group we were about the only people to kill on that mountain and the next uh the next day we had we came back to that same area and uh heard that same bull bugling that we had went after initially and josh got altitude sickness we're pretty sure that's what it was he got really really nauseous because we were pretty high we were like eight or nine thousand feet and uh he got out two seconds because we had to go all the way to the bottom. And to get back to this bull, we got cliffed out. So we got all the way to the bottom, and it was literally a sheer cliff to go up the other way. There was no way around it. So we were going to have to climb all the way back up to where we started, go all the way around the trailhead, then all the way around the mountain. It was going to be, a, I had to guess, a four- or five-mile loop. And it wasn't flat. And Josh was not feeling good. So we backed out, looked, went back, let him kind of take a nap, see if he could get to feeling any better. And uh, ended up some guys from Arkansas ended up killing that bull the next day. He was a good bull. He had like six cows. He was probably the herd bull in that area. Um, and then the last day, it was I think it was just me and Dad. We went up to another area. I actually went up, and I called in a bull right by Dad. That uh, in 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 Colorado they have to have either four on one side, or a five inch brow tine. And this bull, believe it or not, had like an eight-inch, like squiggly, weird brow tine. And this bull walks right by Dad, and I'm like laying on the ground because I I see him coming. I lay down because I draw back to call, and he's walking right by Dad. And I just like lay down on the ground because I didn't want to mess it up. Right. And I'm like waiting to hear a shot, waiting to hear a shot, waiting to hear a shot, never hear a shot. And then I hear like a stick break, and I look, and that bull's like ten feet from me, <laughs> and I can just see his feet, and I like move my hand over my face with my gloves, so I cover my face up so he doesn't, like, it's like, I don't want to ruin this. And then this bull just walks off, and I hear him walk down the hill. I stand up, and I just throw my hands up and look at Dad. I'm like, why didn't you shoot him? And Dad goes, well, he didn't have four on one side. He only had three. He's like, I was trying to make him grow that fourth point. <laughs> and I said, Dad, or a five-inch brow tine. He goes, oh. 
I didn't oh. know that. And I'm like, you're kidding oh, me. Man. Could have could have smoked him too. Wow. I mean, he. I was like, could you have shot him? He's like, oh, a thousand times. I was like, <laughs> golly. So it was one of those trips to where, you know, getting to be there with them, getting to really experience some elk acting like elk are supposed to act. Because my first two trips, there really wasn't much bugling. We really didn't see many elk. But just being out west, first trip was on horses, which I don't recommend that. I hate horses. Um, <laughs> it was just to be out west is, is cool enough. But then to finally get to see elk acting like elk, and then now that I've gotten to do some of these really high dollar private land elk hunts, it's just it'll ruin you, man. It'll ruin. There's nothing. There's nothing like it. No, that's awesome. Uh, so a couple of things I wanted to touch on from your story. You said the the elk you shot ran like five or six hundred yards. Is that a common thing? I mean, elks are el- oh, elks yeah. are massive. They're but. extremely tough. So, um, so I shot mine in New Mexico this year, which I didn't tell that whole story. It's not, I mean, it's a cool story, but it's not as cool as the, the Colorado no, I one. Like but, the, I like the one you ended up telling. That was good. Yeah. Um, the one I shot in New Mexico this year, I blew out both his lungs, and he still ran at least 300 yards. Wow. Um, the one I shot in the throat ran four or 500 yards. Um, Dudley shot one in Utah last year that they did not even find until spring this year. And hit him through, like lung and liver or something like that, and they found him like four miles away. Oh my goodness! So, um, wow. it's they're they're the toughest animal that I've ever that I've. I mean, I've only done brown bear once, and I've only done moose once. But luckily, both of those were like one of them was a rifle, and the other one was a bow. And we shot him at like twenty six yards, but. Yeah, elk are, are by far the toughest. Like, I mean, there's pictures. I've seen it several times. Look, I've never taken one, but with have elk have antlers broke off in their face, and they're still fighting and bugling. Like, they don't care. Wow. They're just they're just so hopped up on adrenaline and hot after cows. They don't they don't even know where they're at. Like, they don't even eat. Like, when they really get after it in the rut, they don't even eat. Wow. They literally run cows all day and all night for weeks at a time. That's insane. Yeah, I think it's what they lose 40% of their body mass in that month. No, I don't doubt it. We had a picture, uh, speaking of rutting animals, we had a picture of a buck on our hunting club a few years ago. And, of course, it was the middle of the week, perfect time. I think it was like 10 a.m., 25 yards in front of my tree stand. Of course, I wasn't there, but there's a picture Naturally. of this buck. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it was like on a Thursday, and, you know, normal normal people work during the week, so... <laughs> There's a there's a picture of this good buck, bigger than anything I would have ever killed. It's probably probably one thirties, but you could see his spine. His he had his mouth, you know, tongue hanging out. Like you could, he just looked tired as a dog. Yeah. So, but I couldn't imagine, like you say, elks they don't eat for weeks, lose forty percent, almost half their body weight. That's mm-hmm. insane. Um, but there's a lot of big differences from Georgia. Oh yeah, you know, around here. If you're tracking a deer and it goes over 100 yards, you're like, oh, I must have made a bad shot. Yeah. And then you, you're like, oh, double-lunged him. He went 300. You know, <laughs> you know that's yeah. insane. Yeah. Uh, so people must be really talented trackers out there. Or do they do they bleed good the whole time? No, they or? don't. They don't bleed good at all because of how thick their how thick their uh, hide is, and then usually they're really they have a lot of fat because yeah. they've had to pack on so much to be able to survive. Um, they don't bleed very well at all. Um. 
you know, they're kind of like, I don't know, they're, they're, they're tough to track. You can almost track, especially like in the timber, like when they're in thick stuff, you can almost track them running and breaking stuff as good yeah. as you can track with blood, blood sometimes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're not the, the, the best, the easiest tracking ones, believe it or not, aren't like mine that's a throat shot, but those frontal shots, because they're almost pointing down. Those are the best bleeding tracking ones, but I don't recommend taking shots like that unless they're under 20 yards. But, um, yeah, they they don't bleed well. Like mine, then I double lunged. Luckily, we watched him fall 300 yards away, but he didn't bleed. Wow. Barely at all. That's that's insane. Yeah. Um. So, no, I love that story. I love how it kind of turned into a yeah. one he didn't know was going to come out. And that's yeah. something I like about doing this is Sometimes you're like, I don't know what we're going to talk about, but yeah. something will fall out of it. Yeah, so. it's one of my few that's actually not on camera either. I mean, we took some pictures, but that we yeah. didn't film. It's just now that now that we're in this business that revolves around content for sponsors and partners and you know clients, it's like you almost are obligated to film everything because you have so many deliverables for you know like Rambo bikes and Diamondback truck bed covers, Diamond blade knives. It's like okay. Yeah. If we go and film this hunt, we can check a lot of boxes for clients. You know, we might as well film it. Um, and we enjoy doing it. So that helps too. But yeah, it's uh, that one. Uh, actually, I guess that's the last one that I haven't filmed. Yeah, it's crazy to think about. I mean, it was a much simpler time. <laughs> yeah, so so it's been, what's that, over, over three years since you've not yeah. taken a camera to the woods? Three, well, yeah, for myself. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, I mean, I've done a couple, like, little random, you know, right. sits to shoot does and stuff, but that's about it. Hmm. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, uh, Caleb, I thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, man. I enjoyed the story. No problem, dude. Anytime. All right. I would like to give a huge thank you to Caleb Copeland of Copeland Creative. And also, he's the co-host of the Redneck Tech Podcast. And he allowed me to use his recording equipment for this episode. So if you enjoy the quality, it is is 100% due to the generosity of Caleb Copeland. So again, Caleb, thank you for coming on. And thank you for allowing me to use your recording equipment. Bucktails Podcast, brought to you in part by Trick Sporting Goods in Dahlonega, Georgia.